0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We're glad that you've come out on this warm, warm uh, Sunday morning to come and worship the Lord with us. And uh, we're thankful for the opportunity we have that we live in a country that is free so that we may come in and open up God's word and not be fearful of persecution uh, for that opportunity just to open up God's Word and see the wonderful truths that are in it and how it applies to our life. We know today that we have many brothers and sisters throughout the world that are meeting and opening up the same truth. Um, But they do so for fear of persecution. And so they are trusting in the Lord for his protection as they uh, boldly stand on his word. And this morning we have a very special opportunity. We want to welcome our Hokesson campus. Uh, They'll be listening in and and, uh, watching what's taking place here. So we're thankful uh, that God has provided us the opportunity with the technology to be able to uh, open up God's word in in different ways. And so we want to welcome them uh, here this morning. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to the second chapter of Romans, the second chapter of Romans. If you have one of the Bibles that we provided, I believe it's on page 781 or 782, and so you can turn there with us. We are in the midst of a series, as you're turning to Romans chapter 2, we're in the midst of a series, it's a summer series that's entitled Pleading the Fifth. And as we've been walking through this passage, we see that that Paul is writing a letter to the Romans. And as he's writing, he's basically setting up the scenario or the scene of a courtroom. And basically what he's been doing is he's been looking at this courtroom and this judgment that comes in the courtroom of faith. And basically he's been walking through different groups of people. And he's been sharing with them how they have no excuse. How they have no defense when they stand before God and they have to give an account of their lives they will be silent because they have nothing to defend themselves with. And so Paul is leveling his message of condemnation against uh, several groups. The first group we looked at was those that were unrighteous. He says the wrath of God is being poured out against those that are unrighteous. Then last week we looked at the wrath of God being poured out on the self-righteous. And this week we're going to take a look at the wrath of God being poured out on the religious. So if you look with me in Romans chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 17. Paul writes, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, delight for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of infants... Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those who are circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Let us pray. Father, we come before your word this morning, knowing that for the past few weeks, we've heard hard words coming from your truth. And Father, again today, we come to this passage again and hear another hard word. Father, we know that also before we can get to the good news, we have to understand how grave our situations are. So Father, today for those of us that are religious, that are holding out our hope in our works and the things that we do, Father, may you bring us low today. Father, help us to see that our hope is not found in what we do, what we think, but as Father, it's in whom we place our faith. So Father, I'm aware today that there are many that have come into this place that have come from weeks that have been challenging. So Father, today may your word be encouraging to them. Father, we also are aware that there are those today that have walked into this place that are full of pride. Father, I pray that you'd bring them low. Father, there are also those here today that are seeking with their whole heart to follow you and to honor you with their lives and may your word be a word of encouragement today. Father, we pray that you would speak in these next few moments for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in the world we live in today, it seems as though technology and communication and connectedness um, are, are, are everywhere. It's amazing to me that to think about it, to be able to see now, to have pictures or sight into activities that for many years have gone unnoticed, and how, how technology and connectedness have brought some of those things to light. And one of the areas that I think have been brought to light the most is, is in the area of fast food. Now we've, we frequent fast food restaurants, and I know throughout the years you've probably heard of rumors about how employees of restaurants handle your food. Uh, and sometimes it makes us a little leery about how we hear about how um, some people will take a food and it'll fall on the ground and they'll just package it up and, and serve it anyway. We've heard rumors like that over the years, right? Well, I think in the, this world now that we live in with smartphones and the internet, some of our worst fears have come to light. From the past few weeks, maybe you've gone to the internet and you've seen a couple pictures which I'm going to show you in just a second. Pictures of employees at restaurants behaving badly. I'm going to show you the first picture here. Have you seen this picture on the internet? Okay, this is a Wendy's employee who is helping himself to the frosty machine. How tasty, right? How many of you want to be the guy that gets the next frosty after that? I do, yeah. No, that's, a, that's an example of this picture was posted on the internet and it immediately went viral. As it was passed all around and um, some of our fears about fast food industry has come to light. The next one is another picture that has gone viral lately. Have you guys seen this one? That... That's a Taco Bell employee, and he's got his whole stack of, of hard tacos there, and he is licking them. So as you can see there, those are pictures of, of giving us insight into some employees behaving badly, and through this, it confirms some of our worst fears about the preparation of food. But I want to ask the question, do you think that these employees are good, represent, good representations of their companies? I mean, if you think about it, something must go oddly wrong for an employee of Wendy's to use the Frosty machine in a very odd, not proper way. If you think about it, if, if that employee is the face of the company, is that a great representation of the Wendy's Corporation? I don't believe so. But here's the challenge. The challenge is, is we hear of these stories and we see these people and we hear about these things taking place over and over again. And we know that they're not proper representations of the company. But the problem is, these employees are wearing the name tag. These employees have the uniforms on. These employees are receiving the benefits of the company. They're receiving a paycheck. They look like the part. They've gone through the training. They know the rules. They know the regulations. They know that they are representations, not only of themselves, but also of their companies. And yet, they're still going down this path that causes the world to second guess the company that they represent. In many ways, these employees have turned the world off. these companies, and they do and are doing the exact opposite what they were brought on to do. So though it is gross, though it is disgusting, we also realize that if you followed either one of these stories, we know that as soon as the Wendy's Corporation learned of this employee and the Taco Bell Corporation learned of this employee, you know what they did right away? They immediately fired them. They immediately let them go and they disassociated themselves with these employees because they were not proper representatives of the company. And you know, as we think about this scenario, I think it's very similar in some ways to Paul's charge that he gives against the Jews in Rome and also to the Jews that he gives in general throughout all of the world. You see, God had called these Jewish people to be the face of God to the world. And through their activities and through their um, choosing to go a different way, they have brought about not only disgrace to themselves, but they've brought about disgrace to the name of God. And so this is the accusation that Paul is now bringing before the Jews of the world. He's saying that throughout space and time, God has provided a very, very special relationship between he and his chosen people, this Israelite nation, these Jewish people. And as we've been walking through this passage, we see that in the previous passage, we see that Paul has begun to talk about the Jews. He's begun to talk about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now Paul is going to go for the jugular. He's going straight for the kill. And he's going to bring his hardest message against this Jewish culture. This Jewish culture of the day that had interchanged and exchanged a special relationship with God. With a religious lifestyle. And so Paul begins here reminding the Jews of their special relationship. He says that God has loved you in a very, very special way. That he has given you a very special name. For we can go back into the Old Testament. We can see that the Jews were brought about through the calling of Abraham. As Abraham was called and Abraham was given a special promise. He was also given a special name. We also see that that through Abraham there was a special promise of provision. For God promised that he will be their God and they will be his people. That through that God would provide them with power. That God would provide them with protection. That God would provide these people with direction. But we also see that God throughout his promise to the Israelite nation and to the Jewish people. He promised them special training. That he gave them through Moses. He gave them the law. He laid out before them the requirements that God had for his people. And so they had the proper training. He even gave them as we see here referenced. He gave them the proper uniform. He gave them the uniform of circumcision. This circumcision was to be an outward example of identification to God. That as the world saw their circumcision, they saw that they were no longer identified with just the world, but that they were set apart to be people that were special unto God. And we see that God providing also this special relationship shows them their purpose. For their purpose in this passage we see was to live in obedience. Their purpose was to guide the blind. Their purpose was to teach and to bring glory and honor to God. So God had provided a special relationship with the Jewish people. But we also need to be reminded that even though Paul is not referring to it directly here, there's implication from this passage. And the special relationship now that Christ has and that God has with His church, the people of His church. And we can see the same thing that God has provided a very special relationship for those that are within the church, His people. For we see that he's given us a special name. He calls those that have placed faith in Jesus Christ. He calls us Christians, which literally means little Christ. So our name is changed. We see that God is just as he did to the Jewish nation. We see that God has also provided a special promise and provision. For God has given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of God dwelling us, that leads us, that empowers us, that corrects us, that helps lead us and do all these things. We see that that is within those that have faith in Jesus Christ. We see that God also continues to provide training for his people. For God has given us his word in the Bible, but he's also given us the church in a way that we can receive instruction and a place to live out our calling. We can see that God has also given us an external identifier such as a uniform in the fact of baptism. For it is in baptism that we outwardly proclaim to the world that we once were dead but now we're alive because of Christ. But then God we also see God has given us his church believers special purpose. He's given us the purpose to go and make disciples of all nations. He's given us the purpose to go and to teach people his word. To show them how to obey and how they can have everlasting life found in Christ. So though Paul here is speaking of the special relationship that God has with the Jews. We also see there's connection to the special relationship that God has with his church. So God because he is rich in mercy. Because God has a plan and a desire to redeem humanity. Has throughout time called certain people unto himself. He called the Jews and now calls the church. But we see in this passage that even though God has always desired a special relationship. Man has always taken that special relationship. Has turned it into producing superficial religion. Man always has continually taken this special relationship and turned it into superficial religion. And this is what Paul is bringing his accusation against the Jews about. You see, in order to live life the way that God has designed it to be, man must come to the end of himself. He must come to the complete end of all of his deeds, all of his work, all of his thoughts. And he must come to the place where he places his faith in Christ. It's not going to be based on what we do or what we say or what we know, but it's going to be based on who we are. And so, though God has set it up that way, man has continually wanted to make righteousness and a relationship with God about himself. Man has continually wanted to turn his relationship with God into adhering to special rules. He wants to make it about something that's external. And what we realize through the word and through the history of of the Jews. And also through the history of the church. That every time man turns this relationship into religion. He sets up a bunch of rules in a way that he hopes to attain righteousness. We realize that man is incapable. Continually incapable of carrying out and living out the rules that he sets for himself. For the religious lifestyle is always about... Living a life of personal performance. The religious life is always about behavior modification. Changing our behavior to to conform ourselves to a list of rules. So that in some way we can attain righteousness or special favor in the sight of God. The religious life is always focused in on working on the outside. Not on the inside. And it seems as though Paul, as he's bringing these accusations against the Jews and this message of of terror or this message of of a plan of hope of how to bring the Jews out of their religious lifestyle back into relationship, we see that that is the same message and the same passion that Jesus came. And when he lived his life, it's the same message that he proclaimed to those religious of his day. You see, in the days of Jesus, the Jewish tradition had made the law into three hundred and sixty-five negative commandments and three hundred or two hundred and forty-eight positive commandments. So that by the time that Jesus was alive, those that were religious, those that were seeking to please God with their lives, looked at this list of three hundred and sixty-five negative commands and two hundred and forty-eight commands and said, In order to be right before God, I've got to carry out and live out all of these rules. And if in some way I'm not living out all of these rules and all these regulations, there's no way that I'll be in right standing with God. And it was easy for those that were the religious leaders of Jesus' day to know the law, to look at the law, and to see the beauty of the law, but then to apply the law to the everyday person. And they would look at themselves and they would look at the everyday person and they would realize that they were much better because they would look at the everyday person and they would see the myriad of rules that the everyday person was breaking. And then when they would look at the religious rules that they were seeking to uphold and that would separate the religious leaders from the common person. And we know that Jesus came to totally dismantle that. For even though the challenge of the, the, the development of all of these rules led the religious leaders, even of Jesus' day, to be looking for greater answers. For here was the challenge. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders looked at those 365 negative commands and 248 248 positive commands, and they looked at their own lives, and they realized that it was impossible for them to live out all of those commandments. They realized that in their day-to-day life, they couldn't do it. And so what they had done is they tried to to summarize or they tried to boil those down to some simplistic rules that they could possibly do. And so by the time of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, they had come to the place of realizing that a person could be in right standing with God if they only kept one law. If they could keep one of those laws completely, then they could in some ways be in right standing with God. That's why we see in Matthew chapter 22, the religious leaders, the lawyers of the day, the teachers of the law, coming to Jesus and asking him this question. They said, Good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? They wanted to know what was the greatest commandment because if they could live that greatest commandment, then they in some way could be in right standing before God. How did Jesus respond? Jesus, knowing the intentions of their heart, gave them the greatest commandment, which is a very simply given, very simple to understand commandment. The command that Jesus said to them was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's it. He says, that's the greatest commandment. He says, the second is like that, to love your neighbor as yourself. So very simply, Jesus just goes to them and says, this is the greatest command. If you want to live and be in right standing with God, then this is the benchmark. Love God more than anything else and then love your neighbor. For if, you're, if you do love God and you are in complete right relationship with God, you naturally will love your neighbor And how challenging that was for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. For they could look inwardly and outwardly. They showed all the things that they possibly could do to show that they loved God. They wore special clothes. They did special uh, regiments. They did special um, religious practices. And so they tried so much in the outward to have the superficial religion. But in reality their heart was very, very far from it. For we even see here, the religious of Paul's day tried to find righteousness in their heritage. They looked back and, they, and Paul says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. So the Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of Paul's day, looked back and said, I, can, I know that I'm in right standing with God because I'm a Jew. Because my mom was a Jew, my dad was a Jew, their parents were Jews. I can trace all of my lineage back almost all the way to Abraham. And so that makes me a Jew of Jews. And Jesus is, or God is saying here through Paul. He's saying that's not where it's going to be found. Then they would go on and they'd say I know I'm in right standing with God. Not only because of my heritage but also because I possess the law. The law was given to us. God in a very special way revealed himself to us through the giving of the law. Like he didn't do with any other people. And so because we possess the law we know that we're in right standing with God. We know that's not where religiousness is really, or righteousness is really found. They go on also to say it's through their knowledge. It's because we have a knowledge. We, we have the truth, but we also know the truth. We're able to look at the world and we're able to see this is a sin, this is not a sin. Because we have that special knowledge too, that means that I am religious. And that means I'm going to be in right standing. They also understood their roles see, they understood that God had called them to be teachers and guides. And so they looked back at their work and said, because we're we're teachers and we're guides, we are special and we are right. And if that wasn't enough, they could go back and they could see their mark of circumcision. They could say, because we have this visible mark to the world, we're God's special people and that makes us right. We can see in this word that Paul gives us that the religious are condemned because of their work. Because they kept their faith external. Everything that we see here they did was on the outside. They did not allow this law and the beauty of the relationship with the Lord to change them on the inside. And Paul is giving them and levelizing this condemnation against them because they had become hypocrites. Look with me in 17 through 23. He says this again, Now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourselves? And this is where he's going in after him. He's saying, You preach against stealing, yet you steal. You who say to those people should not commit adultery, you yourselves are committing adultery. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? as it is written and this is the most condemning quotation of scripture that i think should have rested very very heavily on the jewish people of paul's days this is because of you god's name is being blasphemed among the gentiles they had become hypocrites they had become two-faced Their outside behavior and their inward heart had not matched up. Hypocrisy ruled in their day. And here's the greatest danger about hypocrisy. The greatest danger about the hypocrisy is the one that is being hypocritical. Their hypocrisy themselves, the one that is is hypocritical, hypocrisy blinds the hypocrite from seeing themselves for who they really are. That's the really danger of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, the person that's hypocritical, believes in all of their external things. That everything on the outside is good. That they're going through and checking off this checklist of things that make them right before God. But in reality they see that the blindness of themselves. That's why they're not able to say, they're able to say, you who steal. That's wrong. But they weren't able to see that they themselves had become thieves. They were able to look out of the world and condemn the world for their adultery. But they weren't able to see the adultery that was on their own heart. But here's the the other danger of hypocrisy. Not only does it make the hypocrite blind. That hypocrisy is elevated and magnified to the world. Everyone else can see the hypocrisy of the hypocrite. Except for the hypocrite himself. That's the great danger of being a hypocrite. The greatest danger is the world sees it, but the person doesn't. But here's the difference. I know the world even looks at those that are believers today. And the world looks at believers and they say, oh, I don't want to be a part of that religion thing. I don't want to be a part of that church thing because the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. You guys ever heard that? Is that the great barrier that we have as we're seeking to share Christ with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors? Our friends say, well, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, the reality is, is true believers always know that they don't live up to the message that they preach. True believers know that they don't live up to the message that they preach, but that at the end of the day, they're not relying on their work to save them. True believers are every day falling on the grace of God. The reason that I'm able to stand before you this morning and proclaim this truth to you Is not as as a person that has it all figured out. I'm not someone that's living the perfect life. But I'm someone that daily has to rest on the grace of God. Because I am evil at times. I am wicked at times. My heart doesn't desire the Lord at times. But it's the grace of God that continues to forgive me. So though my message and my life may not measure up. And at times I'm blinded to that. Even though you may be able to see it. And the world is able to see it. All I can proclaim to you is not that I figured it out, but every day I rest in the grace and mercy of Christ. You see, there are those even in our world today that have worked really, really hard to develop this superficial religion. There are those that even identify themselves, give themselves the name Christian. Those that even go through the waters of baptism. And then there are even those that even work to proclaim this message. They may serve the church. They may do these amazing things. But the truth of the word hasn't fully penetrated their heart. And what we see, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, that there is a reward for this religious life. He says this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who does the, But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many signs and works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. So we see here that there are those that are living the religious lifestyle that the Lord is going to come to when they stand before him in judgment. He's going to say, I didn't know you. Next, I want us to see in this passage the, rep- the repercussions of this religious life. What is the result of the relig- religious life? When God's people live religion, Live by a set of rules. What has happened? Look with me in verse 24. This is the repercussions of this religious life. God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So what are the repercussions of religious life? God's name is blaspheme. When the world looks at the life of those that are called to be different... And the world sees no difference between their life, their rebellious life, and the religious person's life. Why would they desire the God of the religious person? So they say that your God, the God that you claim, is not a real God. We can see that God's name being blasphemed is something that is an indication or drawback from the Old Testament. Both God's name being blasphemed among the Gentiles is a pullback to Isaiah chapter 52 and Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 22. In Isaiah 52, this is what the Lord says, All day long my name is constantly blasphemed, the Lord says through Israel. And so what he is reminding the people of here is that the purpose of God's love, the purpose of God's special concern and care and protection for the Israelite nation was so that God's name would be proclaimed. God's name would be glorified. That the world would look at Israel and that they would see God and they would want to worship him. But what they saw was God's people taking the name of of God and defaming it. What they were doing was they were taking God's grace and his love and his mercy. And they were spitting on it. And in such a way they were bringing such great disgrace to the name of God. Ezekiel chapter 36 gives us a similar picture. As the word of God says, I will show the holiness of my great name. Which has been for among the nations. The name you have profaned, profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. When I show myself through you before their eyes. See, God is very passionate about the holiness of his name. And as bearers of his name, we are representatives of his great name. And when we live in that way that doesn't bring great honor and glory to his name. We are living like those employees at Taco Bell and at Wendy's. That's the charge of Paul against the religious. Saying you may wear the uniform. You may have all of the training. You may even be receiving the benefits of being connected with this great organization. But when your heart is not right and you're just following life through the external, you're going to end up someday making a mockery of your boss. I've heard this quote from an old Jesus, uh, uh, an old uh, DC Talk album, the album "Jesus Freak." On that CD, they. Um, There's a phrase in one of their songs that was actually a quote from Brennan Manning where he writes, The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The challenge of our day is that we as believers and the Jews of Paul's day will always seek to take this relationship and turn it into something that is religion. But then we see the end of this passage. Verses 28 through the end of this chapter. We see the third thing. We see that God praises a surrendered heart. This is what praises the Lord. This is how you come from, make sure that you're not living a life that's religious, but that you're living a life that's found in relationship. God praises a heart that is surrendered. What brings God glory is not the external life. It's a surrendered heart. This has been the design from the beginning. As you walk through every page of the Old Testament, we can see what was, what was calling out to the people that God called unto himself was a changed heart. We can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. And we see this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Doesn't that sound pretty close to the great commandment? That the spirit is going to come. That the Lord God will circumcise your heart. That the circumcision is not something that's outward. But it's something that must take place inwardly in your heart. And that's what Paul says even at the end of this chapter. A man is not a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is, not circumc- and circumcision, is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Not by the written code. What honors the Lord is not a person that has the spirit of a, or have the appearance of a relationship. It's one whose heart has been changed by the Spirit. Now the religious person here today hears this message, and they realize that in their lives, their hearts have to change. They look inwardly and they see that their hearts are dead, that their hearts are callous, that their hearts are full of things that have not allowed the word of God to penetrate it. And so they hear this passage and they hear that the the spirit of God needs to change them. And they ask themselves the question, how then can I manufacture a changed heart? For the religious person is all about performance. The religious person is all about trying to make it happen. And so they ask themselves the question. Then how can I make my heart like this heart? And that's the wrong question. The the answer is you cannot make your heart change. That's what we see here. It's not an act of the person. But it is an act of the spirit of God. It is the spirit of God that comes and takes that heart of stone. And slowly through the power of the word and through the spirit begins to tear away those layers of callousness. So that it becomes a heart of flesh. Have you guys ever had a callous before? Like on a finger or something? It becomes this hard ridge or this clump of, of just flesh that really doesn't do anything. But you know that it's there. And how you can remove it, you can go to people that have calluses on their feet. They can go to people that have nice, nice razors and people that do pedicures. And what do they do? They spend time, which is really kind of nasty. They take this razor and they go across the calluses on the feet. And they continue to, to, to tear off and to, to cut off those layers of dead skin until they can get to the vibrant skin that's alive. That's what the Spirit needs to do to the heart of those that are finding their hope in their actions. The reality is, if we hope to be in right relationship with the Lord, which Paul is going to further exemplify as we walk through the rest of these chapters, the key is the heart must be surrendered to the Spirit. That is what praises the Lord. So if you're here today and you know that you do not know the Lord. You know today that you're living as one of those people that are in um, rebellion against God. And you've been using this hypocritical world as an excuse. First I want to apologize. I want to apologize to you that believers in the world today have had and have lived as hypocrites in the past. But I want you to be aware that God is still real. And because of the hypocrites in the world, you're still without excuse. Don't let a few turn you off to the true life that's found in Christ. If you're here today and you are a believer, you have his name, you have his identification, you are his child... And I pray that the Spirit of God has led you this morning to be able to begin to identify and acknowledge our our own hypocrisy. For there is this tendency in our lives to take this word of God and to go to the people of the world that we come in contact with and just do this to the word of God. Where we just say, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. I pray that we become people That don't do that, but instead we take it and ingest it and take it into ourselves. It becomes our food, it becomes our life, it becomes what we ingest and digest, and then what is taken in becomes what we speak and what we do. I pray today that we become people that come once again to the word of God and to God himself and surrender our hearts to him so that we can be proper examples of his love. This has been the word of God that we've heard today. How does he want you to, to respond? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And if you're here today and you just need to talk to someone, I'm going to be available in the back. You can just come take me by the hand and say, this is, what, this is what God has been showing me today. I just need some prayer. Or I need someone to just help me. I want you to know that I'll be here and others will be available to you as well. But you may just need to take this time and just look inwardly. And as God has helped you be aware of hypocrisy that's in your life, pray that you, could, you acknowledge it and confess it. But I also pray that we become people that surrender our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us and thank you for your word. And I pray now, God, as we enter into this time to respond in this time just to sing. May you continue to work in our hearts. May you continue to teach us. May you continue to show us the truths of your word. Challenge us and change us and help us to be motivated to move and to respond. Father, may the words that come out of our mouths as we sing this song be a reflection of our heart.